From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Tuesday, June 26th. I'm Marco Werman. A top British official says the Arab Spring has been good for al-Qaeda. But this expert says Egypt's ongoing revolution could spell the end of the terrorist group. The truth is al-Qaeda is fighting for his life. The main thing that would put a stake in his heart is a successful democratic experience in Egypt. And later, an update on the Russian punk band that took on Putin. What we're seeing here is also a drama, and it's extremely irrational and absurd, and no one can stop it. PRI's The World is brought to you by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, global reach, local impact. More at Medtronic.com. And by WGBH, producer of Masterpiece, presenting Endeavor, Sunday, July 1st at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Despite the continuing violence in Syria and the bloody months of struggle in Libya, the conventional wisdom goes that the Arab Spring has been a good thing. Just look at Egypt. A dictator is out and a new leader has just been democratically elected. But today, a counterweight to all the warm feelings about democracy blooming in the Mideast. The head of the British intelligence service, MI5, said that the Arab Spring has provided a fertile moment for al-Qaeda in the Mideast. Gordon Carrera is the BBC security correspondent, and he's on the line with us from London. Uh, Gordon, MI5 is historically a pretty secretive organization, and Jonathan Evans, its head, hasn't spoken publicly since 2010. Why come out now with uh, this surprising statement about al-Qaeda and the Arab Spring? Well, this was an overview, I guess, of the threats that MI5 sees the UK facing uh, in the future. He talked a bit about the Olympics because that's the most immediate one, but he also moved beyond that and said, look, even if we get beyond the Olympics and the security concerns over that, there are these other threats out there. And he talked about a range of them, including, for instance, cyber security and the attacks on the UK in, in cyberspace. But he also did mention this concern about the Arab Spring, particularly saying that in the short term, he feels that there are dangers. He talked about the Arab Spring having created a more permissive environment for al-Qaeda to operate, basically the instability in states providing either safe havens or a weakening of the security forces, Yemen being, of course, the the classic example of where that's happened most. Mm -hmm. Well, Yemen didn't have a a very successful Arab Spring. Did he give any other specific examples of where al-Qaeda seems to be regrouping in the Arab world? Well, he was clear that he thought al-Qaeda was operating to some extent in Syria. He was also talking about the concern that Britons or people from Britain were going out to fight in some of these conflicts. For instance, they had done in Libya, they might be doing now in Syria, and that these people then might come back to the UK a bit like they used to in Afghanistan, radicalized and willing to carry out some kind of terrorist act. That was one of his real concerns. Right. Given that he uh, spoke specifically about those British uh, citizens uh, traveling abroad for terrorist training, who do you think uh, his statement was intended for? Who was the audience? 
Well, I think it was partly to the broader public saying, don't relax now and think that terrorism is over. I think there might be some concern, he said, that people think, well, with Osama bin Laden dead, with things dropping down a bit in Pakistan, Afghanistan, that means we can relax and that there's no more threat from terrorism. I think his point was to say that there are still concerns. Of course, the job of the head of a security service, though, is to have concerns. As you said, Yemen seems to be the biggest concern for MI5. uh, And you also pointed out that MI5 seems to feel that Afghanistan and Pakistan have receded somewhat. Mm. But British troops are still there. There's still a war going on in Afghanistan. Uh, Why did he feel that way? Well, it was interesting. He said that the counter-terrorist casework that MI5 does, a few years ago, 75% of those cases had some link to Pakistan or Afghanistan. Now, that's dropped to below 50%. So clearly there's been a shift away from there and towards other places like Somalia and Yemen in terms of seeing links when there are terrorist cases. But he was saying that just because combat troops might be leaving Afghanistan soon, we shouldn't take our eye off it completely because, of course, there is a danger of a resurgence there in the future. I mean, Al-Qaeda used to be such a monolithic organization. Uh, Did Jonathan Evans give a sense that maybe it's been decentralized a bit? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the way he was talking about it. Less monolithic, more varied in coming out in different places, clearly worries about North Africa, also places like Mali, as well as Somalia, Yemen, and so on. None of those places necessarily have the concentration of people and of, for instance, training camps that might have been there in Pakistan, Afghanistan in the past, though. So I think that's one reason why the UK has been seeing slightly less sophisticated plots and less Mm. advanced plots, apart from perhaps some of the the specialist bombs coming out of Yemen, though. All right, Gordon, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. Thank you. Gordon Carrera, the BBC security correspondent, speaking with me there. In Egypt, where the Muslim Brotherhood's candidate has captured the presidency, Islamists insist they respect democracy and reject the goals of terrorist organizations. But historically, the relationship between the Muslim Brotherhood and al-Qaeda has been long and twisted. Lawrence Wright dug deep into that history in his book, The Looming Tower, Al-Qaeda and the Road to 9-11. Wright says in its early days, especially in the 1940s and early 50s, the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood embraced violence. Its most violent expression probably was in 1954 when a Muslim member of the Muslim Brothers decided to assassinate Gamal Abdel Nasser at a speech he was making in Alexandria. The entire country heard the shots, which injured a bystander, but did not hit Nasser at all. And after that, the government cracked down on the Muslim Brotherhood. And uh, that was a important moment in the history of al-Qaeda, because that's when Ayman al-Zawahri, who was a young 15-year-old student then, decided to form a cell to overthrow the Egyptian government. And he is now the head of al-Qaeda. I want to ask you about him in just a second, but what do you think was the moment when the Muslim Brotherhood kind of entered the mainstream and became, you know, this political party that is now running Egypt today? It's interesting how that happened. They wanted a route to power. And in Egypt, there are a number of syndicates, professional syndicates for doctors, lawyers, journalists, and they colonized those syndicates. In the process, the Muslim Brotherhood became a much more middle-class professional organization. And in 2005, they formally decided to enter the political process. But long before that, al-Qaeda and Zawahri had broken with the brothers because of their uh, tendency to accommodate with the government. This middle-class professionalism has really defined it in the last several decades. Mm. And the al-Qaeda strain of the Muslim Brotherhood, if you will, really got vilified by the uh, Egyptian government 
What do you think uh, the severely disabled leadership of al-Qaeda makes of the Muslim Brotherhood today? I mean, Ayman al-Zawahiri, as you say, an Egyptian doctor, number two in al-Qaeda, now number one. He was a dyed-in-the-wool Muslim brother. What must he be thinking of Mohamed Morsi today? Ayman al-Zawahiri hates the Muslim brothers. Uh, he, he wrote a book called Bitter Harvest in which he denounced them. It would be very, very difficult for him to accommodate to what's happening now because the brothers, their acceptance of democracy is the very opposite of what al-Qaeda stands for. In Zawahiri's opinion, the brothers have walked away from the original idea of the, of the Muslim Brotherhood, which was that God's law is it takes precedence over man's law. And the brothers believe this, but they just believe that democracy is the best way of enforcing that kind of change in Egyptian society and other Islamic societies. Zawahri doesn't believe in democracy at all. He, he, he would prefer to see a, a religious theocracy take control. And uh, that once was the vision of the Muslim brothers as well. But it doesn't seem to be so predominant in the thinking today. You know, the, the truth is al-Qaeda is fighting for its life. The main thing that would put a stake in his heart is a successful democratic experience in Egypt. And if the Muslim brothers can demonstrate responsible leadership in Egypt that is tolerant and progressive, that'll be the end of al-Qaeda. If they fail, it'll be a different story. It's interesting that you say that the Arab Spring could actually mean something of a death knell for al-Qaeda. This is what it's all about for al-Qaeda. It wanted mainly to take over an Arab country, and Egypt was the most appealing of all of them, especially for Zawahri, his own native country. It was his goal since he was 15 years old. And what has happened? Well, the Muslim brothers are now a democratically elected government, and they have taken over the government, a goal that al-Qaeda never even got close to. Let me put this to you, Lawrence Wright. I mean, since you point out that the Muslim Brotherhood kind of colonized occupations uh, in, in Egypt, um, but they've kind of been doing that for decades. Mm-hmm. How did they manage to one-up the military in, the, in this most recent instance? Well, the Muslim Brothers are, you know, a very formidable force in Egypt, and, uh, you know, and so is the military. These are the two primary poles that function in Egyptian society right now. And they had to come to an accommodation. Neither one of them could work without the other. And so I think what we've seen is that the military has bowed to the reality of Egyptian political system right now. doesn't mean that they're not going to be a big factor in politics. And I don't think the story's been told yet about where Egypt is going, especially what the military's role will be in the future. Lawrence Wright, a staff writer at The New Yorker and the author of The Looming Tower, Al-Qaeda and the Road to 9-11. He's been speaking with us from Austin, Texas. Lawrence Wright, thank you so much. It's a pleasure, Marco. Thank you. The conservative kingdom of Saudi Arabia has never sent women athletes to the Olympics. But this week, the Saudi embassy in London said the kingdom would allow women athletes to go to the London Olympics as long as they qualify. One Saudi woman who was poised to compete was Dalma Rushdie Malhas. She's a 20-year-old equestrian who won a bronze medal at the Youth Olympic Games two years ago. But today, the International Equestrian Federation stated that Malhas will not be competing in London because her horse has suffered an injury. Laura Bashrahil is covering the story for the Saudi Gazette in Jeddah. Well, there's no, nothing official yet. 
That's the problem. They, the, according to the BBC report on Sunday, the Saudi embassy has sent a statement to the BBC that there's a possibility to allow Saudi women to compete. But from the Saudi Olympics Committee and the general presidency of youth welfare in Saudi, there's nothing confirmed yet. There's no official statement, which makes us, all of us, we're confused. I want to ask you about the case of this equestrian in just a moment. But what what Saudi women athletes are currently poised to go to the Olympics if something official uh, is green-lighted? We we haven't received any news about any woman competing, except for Dalma Marhas. She's the only one because she competed internationally before. But other women we know nothing of. That's the problem. And now they're saying that she's not going to compete because of her heart injury. But she hasn't come to the media. She didn't discuss anything. She didn't make any statements, like official statements, that she's going to compete or she's going to be part of the Olympics. Nothing is confirmed yet. That's why everything is so confusing with the Olympics. It's after a month, and nothing is confirmed yet. And and why is the Saudi government being so cagey about what women will compete and whether women will compete at all with just weeks away from the Olympic Games? Well, the latest statement was back in April from the uh, Saudi Olympics Committee. The Saudi Olympics Committee won't sponsor anyone officially, but if anyone wants to compete, Saudi Arabia will be fine with it. But they're not going to sponsor anyone. Does that imply Mm -hmm. that if women go, they're going to have to cover their own costs to the Olympics? And would they be able to participate? Would they be able to compete under the Saudi flag? For example, if there is a Saudi student in a university in London who's doing any any sports, she can compete in the Olympics with the, under the Saudi flag, but she's not part of the Saudi Olympics Committee. She's not official sent from Saudi Arabia. So they're which, which makes it very complicated. I was going to say it's kind of they're they're having their cake and, and eating it too. So the women is are, exactly. are they're kind of quasi Saudis. Exactly. They, they, they're saying, okay, you want to you compete, just do it on your own. We're not really sponsoring anyone. Maybe because of the whole pressure, the international pressure. The thing is, true, we still need to focus on internal issues of sports and allowing women to practice sports. I mean, Olympics, it's a huge event. So you can't just send anyone who's playing in their courtyard, you know. An athlete has to have a whole team to prepare them for the Olympics. Sure. We just, we don't want to send anyone there, you know. I, I think Dalma Marhas is a good candidate, but hopefully, I'm not, hopefully she's going to participate, but we're still not sure of, of that yet. Laura Bashrahil, a journalist with the Saudi Gazette in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. Thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you, Marco. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, Global Reach, Local Impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Next Sunday, Mexicans will elect a new president. The vote could mark the return to power of the Institutional Revolutionary Party, or PRI. It ran Mexico with an authoritarian hand from 1929 to 2000. The PRI is still powerful, and its candidate Enrique Peña Nieto is leading in the polls. His main opponent is the populist Andrés Manuel López Obrador. This is his second attempt to win the presidency after a very narrow and controversial loss six years ago. 
Running third is Josefina Vasquez-Mota of the ruling National Action Party, or PAN. She's hoping to become Mexico's first woman president. This week, we're hearing from voters in Mexico and what they're hoping for ahead of Sunday's vote. Today, reporter Miles Esty introduces us to a young Vasquez Mota supporter. Olga Velasquez Villa is 23 and from the northern Mexican state of Coahuila, but now lives in Mexico City and works in telecommunications. She comes from a family that supported the PAN long before the party ended seven decades of pre-rule, with Vicente Fox's victory in 2000. She says she likes what the PAN and Vasquez Mota stand for. Bueno, primero porque... First of all, the party's values, which are humanist, democratic, and Christian. I agree with those principles. As for Vasquez Mota, I like her proposals on how to improve education and security. On education, she plans to open 150 universities. I agree with that, because what Mexico needs to advance is education. People who are well-prepared and who demand that our candidate keep the promises that he or she makes. Velasquez wants a president willing to take on the predominated teachers' unions, to put an end to teachers who don't show up to work, and to improve standards. She believes Vasquez Mota would do that. And as far as security is concerned, Velasquez wants continuity. She admits that President Felipe Calderón's war on drugs has not been perfect. But she wants to stick with the PAN strategy. I think it was good to take on the drug traffickers because, well, the previous party, the PRI, just negotiated with the narcos. I'm from Torreón, where there's a lot of violence. And yeah, I know how they kill innocent people. So why negotiate with people that keep attacking you and threatening your security? Better to take them head on. And yeah, fight. Maybe things have gotten out of control and out of Felipe Calderón's hands. But I think it was the right move to confront the narcos and stop negotiating. Velasquez also thinks Vasquez Mota could build on Calderón's strategy by improving anti-drug cooperation with the United States. She doesn't trust the other candidates to make the right choices in this fight. I'm scared by the thought of Peña Nieto getting the presidency. And I just don't know about López Obrador. We don't know what either would do if they controlled the country. Would they fulfill their promises? Or would they turn out like Chavez or something? Honestly, I worry if either of those two wins. Many analysts think the winner will be determined by how many young Mexicans vote and by which party does a better job convincing people who would not normally vote to turn out on Election Day. Velázquez sees both these groups in her daily life. Well, most of my friends will vote, mostly for the PAN. But at work, the majority don't support a party. They're not interested in politics. It just doesn't matter to them who governs. It's all the same. Olga Velázquez does care, and she doesn't trust the polls, which show her candidate in third place. For the world, this is Miles Esty in Mexico City. You can see pictures of the Mexican voters we're profiling this week at theworld.org. Our series on Mexican voters continues on the air. Tomorrow, we'll meet a voter who wants to see the old ruling party, the PRI, come back to power. Even as Mexico prepares for Election Day this Sunday, there's no let-up in the country's drug war. 
The latest episode to raise concerns happened yesterday in an unlikely place, the International Airport in Mexico City. Three policemen were killed in a shootout at one of the airport's food courts. Authorities say the killers were two fellow police officers suspected of working for the drug cartels. Ignacio de los Reyes is a reporter for BBC Mundo in Mexico City. Ignacio described yesterday's shootout at Mexico City's airport. It was at the food court. Yeah, on officials say that the three agents who were shot dead were attempting to arrest two other officers of the same police force who were suspected of involvement in a cocaine trafficking rig in, in Mexico City's airport. And the suspected traffickers opened fire, killing two officers immediately and injuring a third one who later died. And they escaped and they are being sought by the, the authorities now. And uh, it is important to say that it's been a shocking event for Mexicans in the capital because the international airport in Mexico City is considered one of the safest places in the country. And obviously because this is the, the main point of entry for tourists, business people and foreign visitors in general. And how solid was the evidence in the investigation as they were going after these cops uh, allegedly selling cocaine at the airport? Well, this incident is still under investigation, but what is true is that traffickers used the capital's main airport to move drugs, but also money and illegal migrants. Actually, shootings in public spaces in broad daylight in Mexico City are very rare. And the last time a shootout like this one happened in Mexico was in 1993, when a Catholic cardinal was shot to death, along with six other people by gunmen believed to be involved uh, with drug traffickers. But there's something else. The, the government says that the suspected killers uh, are members of the federal police involved in drug trafficking. Mm -hmm. And the federal police is considered one of the most trustworthy forces in Mexico. And, and now even its agents are facing allegations of corruption and links to, with uh, drug cartels. So after the shootout, once it was revealed that some of the policemen at the airport were being investigated for their involvement in drug trafficking and got away, uh, how embarrassing has this been for the government? It's been very embarrassing. And actually, this hasn't been a good week for the Mexican government at all. I mean, we have to remember that there was another incident last week when the security forces detained the son of one of Mexico's biggest drug cartel leaders. And actually, the authorities then had to admit that they had made a huge mistake. It wasn't him at all. Right. They were looking for the son of a notorious drug lord, Joaquin Chapo Guzman, and it turns out the, the guy was a used car dealer. How did the Mexican police get that so wrong? Why didn't they confirm his identity before showing him off? Uh, what the Mexican government said is that they had information provided by the U.S. government. And on the other hand, the U.S. authorities said that they had information provided by the Mexican authorities. And on Thursday, officials in Mexico paraded before the media. A man that they said was most wanted man in the country later became a major embarrassment for President Felipe Calderon's administration uh, when the true facts came out. Mm. So the cops have a shootout among themselves at the airport while investigating an internal smuggling operation. And last weekend, they conspicuously arrest the wrong man. All of this is coming before the Mexican presidential election on Sunday. How do Mexicans currently feel about the competence of their law enforcement? Is it again showing the government weak in solving the drug problem? Well, the security forces have long faced allegations of corruption and links with the drug cartels. And it is also important to say that local and international NGOs have long warned of widespread impunity for human rights abuses by officials, 
And uh, it is important to say, because the government says it's very respectful of human rights in Mexico, but certainly this is the concern for many here, especially when cases like this one with a man mistakenly identified occur. Ignacio de los Reyes, reporter with BBC Mundo, speaking with us from Mexico City. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Public Radio International. Free podcasts are made possible with support from individuals like you. Please visit PRI.org and make a gift today to invest in better media. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead on the world, a Greek-American restaurant owner in Athens tells us how he keeps going through these tough economic times. I'd have to say that my winning point was being Greek when I need to be Greek and being American when I need to be American. And later, the surprising winner of the first Pasta World Championship in Italy. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating Project 6, the worldwide volunteer effort by Medtronic employees during the month of June. Project 6, global reach, local impact. Learn more at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. The European Union holds a summit in Brussels later this week. At the top of the agenda, Greece and its debts. The new Greek prime minister won't be there. He's recovering from eye surgery. But he's promising his government will press to renegotiate the terms of the EU bailout for Greece. The country is struggling under harsh austerity measures, and the situation for many small Greek businesses is extremely difficult these days. But here's the story of one Greek-American who is finding his own path through the crisis. The world's Clark Boyd reports from Athens. Cooks crowd the small kitchen at Vezinet restaurant. It's just before the dinner rush, and Ari Vezinet, head chef and owner, is putting his crew to work. Vezinet says it's still kind of strange how he ended up here. I cannot say that I was one of those examples where I knew I wanted to become a chef and owner, a restaurateur from the age of five. That would be a total lie. Vezinet did grow up eating good home-cooked Greek food. He was born in New York City to Greek parents. His family returned to Greece when he was eight. Then Vezinet went back to the U.S. to go to college in the Chicago area. To make ends meet, he got his first restaurant job. In Burger King in Orland Park, Illinois, as um, as funny as it sounds, that was my very first job. Vezina didn't last long at Burger King. Instead, he ended up in Chicago's Greek town working for a restaurant. He moved up from dishwasher to waiter and finally into the kitchen. Vezina says he fell in love with the food business. In June of 2005, he decided to return to Greece. I was um, losing my father, and uh, since I'm an only child, the family aspect of our culture is very, very important, so I felt it was my obligation to return to Greece and reunite with my family. Vezinet wanted to start his own business right away, but the rents in Athens were too high, so he got a job working at the restaurant in the Hilton Hotel. He worked double shifts to earn more money, and he learned about Greece's unique approach to credit. The term line of credit in this country had no substance. There were no credit bureaus. There were no background checks. What does that boil down to? There were companies that would come at the restaurant 
hosting parties of 30, 40, 50 people and expect it to pay us three months later. In 2009, Ari Vezinus started his own restaurant, an Italian place on the Greek island of Meganisi. He didn't get a loan. He paid for it all out of his own pocket. That restaurant was so successful that he decided to take another big risk and opened a place in Athens last year. Vezina admits that opening in the midst of a financial meltdown seems a bit crazy now, but he did his homework. He got a good location in the shadow of the Hilton where he started out. He serves a mixed menu, some Greek stuff, some Italian. His specialties are top-quality beef and fish dishes. Vezina says he prepays in cash for everything. That means he gets better deals. Vezina does cater to a higher-end Greek clientele, many of whom have stopped going out quite so much. Not because they have less money, Vezina says, but because they don't want to draw attention to the fact that they have the money to go out. Vezina says there is a secret to his success. I'd have to say that my winning point was being Greek when I need to be Greek and being American when I need to be American. Vezina says the American side comes out when he has to negotiate and make tough business decisions without letting personal feelings get in the way. And the Greek side? Adapting to the reality. I cannot just go to City Hall and turn everything upside down. I'm not going to change it. So there's no point of me fighting the system. I don't have to like it, but nor can I entirely change it. So far, Vezina's mix of old and new worlds has been successful. The restaurant is fully booked most nights. But Ari Vezina says he knows it could all change at any moment, especially with the economic situation in Greece. If the restaurant fails, he says, he's already made a decision. I'm not going back to the U.S. If all hell breaks loose tomorrow and for some reason this doesn't work out, I would much rather go back to my home island or pick any island in the Aegean Sea do a little business there, make less money and wake up every day and look at the clear blue skies and the crystal clear water, then make more money. And this is me being Greek and saying no to, let's say, the American dream. Vezina says he always keeps in mind an old Greek saying about spending money. Only stretch, the saying goes, as long as your arm can reach. If only the Greek government had remembered that one. For The World, this is Clark Boyd, Athens. We stay in the food business for today's GeoQuiz. This, I warn you, is a super quick quiz. We're looking for an Italian city that's famous for its cheese. You've no doubt sprinkled it on your pasta more than once. The city is in Italy's Emilia-Romagna region, south of Milan, north of Florence. Got it? The answer is Parma. This month, the first World Pasta Championship was held there. The competition put a spotlight on how Italian food is cooked and consumed outside of Italy. 26 chefs from Italian restaurants scattered from Toronto to Jakarta took part. Reporter Megan Williams joined them in the kitchen. The assignment was the same for each chef. Prepare and present the pasta dish most popular with customers of their respective restaurants around the globe in 40 minutes or less. Gabriele Paganelli, a full-bellied chef based in Toronto, gamely works the hot pans around his shiny chrome cooking station. If you do a party, something that they're all the same thing, that is very easy, that we make it and we plate it. He says he knew Canadians had finally begun to understand Italian food when customers started requesting a dish he could hardly move out of the kitchen door at first. Ravioli, burro salvia. 
first three, four years, I couldn't sell ravioli burrosalia. Ravioli with butter because, and sage. Because it's a very simple, not too many ingredients, and people, they didn't understand. Why? Because it wasn't somehow complicated enough? It didn't have enough ingredients? Yes, because it didn't have enough ingredients. In Canada, the mentality was, oh, we have many ingredients and um, butter is the dish. Most of the chefs here say their customers have grown more sophisticated over the years. Gone are the days, they say, when they were forced to entice patrons with bastardized concoctions like spaghetti and meatballs, or horror of horrors, cream-soaked and mushy fettuccine Alfredo. But some still feel the pressure to compromise, like Salvatore de Vivo, who cooks for Russian and Ukrainian oligarchs in Kiev. Many times they, they ask me to change a recipe, uh, like a white sauce, creamy sauce. If my first chef, uh, my, my teacher, I mean, uh, saw me to cook something with cream, they will, he will kill me. No? <laughs> but sometime for, uh, let's see, some special guest. I close my eyes and, uh, you know, I, I try to adapt. Creamy or not, the point of the cook-off was to see what Italian chefs are doing outside Italy. Gianluigi Zanti heads up Accademia Barilla, the Parma-based food academy that organized the event. Basically, we want to see what dishes are they actually successful at cooking in Ukraine, in London, in Singapore, how Italian cuisine is evolving and try to identify, you know, who has interpreted the best the dishes according to an Italian kind of jury. The dishes were judged by appearance, taste, how al dente the pasta was, and most important of all, how Italian it is, the Italianity. So we have a bonus on Italianity. Can you say Italianity again? Italianity, perché? One more time? No. <laughs> Not all of the competitors were Italian, though. London-based Yoshi Yamada stood out as he slid around pans of scampi, calamari, clams, and mussels. And then I'm going to keep this juice for, uh, to make a base of pasta, which is really lovely. Yamada may be Japanese, but he was trained near Naples, so he jokingly calls himself a Giappolitano. He says what won him over to Italian food was the culture. I just simply love it, yeah. Uh, about the culture, you know, lifestyle, people, not only about only food, but also, you know, very slow style, slow life, slow food. It's, you know, atmosphere, lifestyle. They look after their family. That love of Italy clearly shone through to the judges. And full disclosure here, I was one of them. We awarded the Giappolitano top prize. The ultimate proof that you don't have to be an Italian to cook good pasta. For the world, I'm Megan Williams in Parma, Italy. And in case you missed it, Parma, Italy is the answer to today's GeoQuiz. Here's a Russian punk band you can't miss, if only for its name, Pussy Riot. Last February, the women of Pussy Riot staged a guerrilla performance of their song, Holy Mother Throw Putin Out, in Moscow's most revered church. Three members of the group were thrown in jail on hooliganism charges. We reported on that when they were arrested. Well, they're still in prison, despite calls for their release. A court decided last week they'll remain in jail at least until their July trial. If convicted, they face up to seven years in prison. 
Natalia Antonova is the deputy editor of the Moscow News. She says the women are scapegoats for Russia's political upheaval. They performed an anti-Putin song that was deemed sacrilegious, and they performed it in the country's main cathedral. And this immediately made them into a kind of a lightning rod for what is happening in, in Russia today, because they brought the fight home to the church. And this offended a lot of people, and that's why they were nabbed, I think, and that's why they're they're still in pretrial detention, have been for some months, and they're probably going to prison for some years. And it makes me sad personally, but I can definitely see the logic of the people who want to put them in prison. Right. I mean, you write that you were shocked by their punk prayer in the Cathedral of Christ the Savior, but uh, you also write it doesn't justify how they're being treated. Why are you so forgiving? And for so many other Russians, these women have just gone too far. Well, I think it's because of the history of the Orthodox Church. In the 20th century, the Orthodox Church was severely repressed. Many members of the church and church officials were, of course, shot. Lots of violence and atrocities were committed against them. And also then the KGB infiltrated the church and really made it, well, you know, it it was just there to serve the state. And I think that for a lot of people, they haven't made that switch. They don't really see the church as a powerful entity. They still see the church as like a martyred entity, if an entity can be martyred. Mm. And I also think that just for some of these people, they derive a kind of uh, weird pleasure from being up on the proverbial cross, I guess, you know, Mm. like to them, pussy right is a good excuse to say, look, look at how we're oppressed. We're fighting the forces of darkness here. And it's a performance for them. And it's a way to blow off steam. Now, a a church official condemned what the women did. Uh, he, He said, I'm convinced that this sin will be punished in this life and the next. So there's definitely pressure coming from the church. These women have been arrested, so there's pressure coming from the Kremlin. Do you think the Kremlin has been insulted by what the women did in a church? No, I mean, uh, I think that for anyone in the Kremlin, they have to keep up appearances, obviously. And since the church is very much aligned with the government, obviously they're going to come out and condemn this. I mean, the higher-ups of the church hierarchy, they're politicians like anyone else. And they will say what needs to be said at a time like this. I mean, the thing is is that a lot of the lower-level clergy is all for letting them go. And I have it on good authority that a lot of the people within the church who are in the higher ranks of power are also for letting them go, because it's just beginning to dawn on everyone that what is happening now is that Pussy Riot are being turned into martyrs themselves. Did the extreme behavior of Pussy Riot at uh, Christ the Savior Church kind of give the Kremlin a political gift at a time when the Kremlin and United Russia have been under intense scrutiny? It certainly did, because it wasn't even the behavior in the church, per se, because it was what happened was very quick and very silly-looking. It was when they later uploaded a YouTube video with the song, and they kind of they had a very heavy soundtrack, and they edited it, so it was very dramatic. I think it gave a lot of people an excuse to say, well, look, if this is what the opposition has stooped to, they're just ridiculous. And it also led to a lot of infighting within the opposition ranks. A lot of people uh, came out and said, look, they should not have done this. Nowadays, though, I think for most people, the fact that they've been in jail for so long, for them, it's a real wake-up call, and it's a sign that something really terrible is happening. In your Guardian story, Natalia, you compare this episode with Pussy Riot to a Shakespearean drama. What do you mean by that? 
I think that Shakespeare had a sense for the irrational and the absurd. And what we're seeing here is also a drama that's playing out in front of our eyes, and it's extremely irrational and absurd, and no one can stop it. And it reminded me in an odd way of King Lear. In King Lear, first of all, you have the fool, obviously, who speaks the truth. And in medieval culture in Russia, you also had these fools who poked fun at the government and often at the church, and they were very obscene and lewd, but they were trying to point out what they saw was wrong with the system. And also, you have the holy fools, which continue to exist in Russia today. It's a group of people that kind of break social norms and taboos. You had cases of holy fools like running naked into a church, and no one thinks about putting these people in prison because holy fools are pointing out the absurdity of the whole situation, the absurdity of life, the absurdity of government. So this tradition is very much alive in Russia, and it's very reminiscent, of course, of the fool and King Lear, who loved the king but also criticized him and told him exactly what he thought. Natalia Antonova, the deputy editor for the Moscow News, speaking with us about the continued detention of the Russian punk band Pussy Riot. Natalia, thank you very much. You're welcome. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from WGBH, producer of Masterpiece, presenting Endeavor. Before his signature Red Jaguar, before he was Inspector Morse, he was the rookie detective constable Endeavor Morse, striving to make a name for himself. Sunday, July 1st at 9, 8 Central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. It's not easy being a North Korean defector. South Koreans look on refugees from the North with disdain, so many defectors live in poverty and isolation. But now there's a new TV show in South Korea aimed at challenging prejudice about North Koreans. The BBC's Lucy Williamson reports from Seoul. At a recording session for South Korea's newest talent show, it's Hanok Jong's turn to impress. In a short, powder-blue evening dress, she twirls around the TV studio, the floor lights picking up the sparkle in her stilettos. On stage, her fellow contestants, in tight skirts and heavy makeup, laugh and clap in time to the music. It's North Koreans as you've never seen them before. Hanok Jong and her companions are all North Korean defectors living here in the South, and this TV talent show, an attempt to rebrand them to their South Korean neighbours. Nam Hee Sok is the show's South Korean host. We wanted to create an image of North Korea as fashionable and sophisticated, an image that would make people want to meet them, marry them, get to know them. The newspapers only carry news of the nuclear programme and the North Korean leadership. All the bad news. I want to transform the image people currently have of North Korean defectors. That image has changed a lot since the first defectors arrived here 20 years ago. Back then, the TV cameras were out to capture the hero's welcome. Now, defectors are more likely to be greeted by moneylenders, prejudice and newspaper articles about their alleged criminality. When I first came to South Korea, I thought the secret was just to keep my mouth shut so that people wouldn't know I was from the north. Hanok Jong is unusual. Despite government support, many defectors struggle to find jobs or acceptance here. But I'm much more open now, perhaps because I've really become part of South Korean society. But the responsibility for changing attitudes, says Hanok Jong, lies not with South Koreans, 
but with defectors themselves. We may have been driven here by hunger and have led very backward lives in the north, but I don't want South Koreans just to feel sorry for us or see us as weak-minded. I think we have a role to play in bridging the differences between the two countries and helping South Korea understand the north. And so, when she's not on TV, Hanok Jong visits schools like this one outside Seoul to tell the children in vivid terms why they're lucky not to live in North Korea and why defectors like her are not so different to South Koreans, really. The question of how far defectors need to blend in to be accepted here is a sensitive one. Hanok Jong's first attempt at showbiz in the South was a North Korean girl band called the Wild Lilies. It never quite took off. Perhaps it was the long, drab outfits or the comedy backing singers. Or perhaps it was simply too North Korean. As the recording session comes to an end, the mood in the TV studio has changed. Many contestants are crying as they listen to each other's stories from home and send video messages back to their parents in the north. There's little chance they're watching. But the pain of separated families is something many South Koreans empathise with, easier to engage with than, say, human rights abuses or complex questions of identity. This might be entertainment TV, but it's also a painful lesson for defectors trying to fit in here. As the show's host said, would you watch if they looked like North Koreans? The BBC's Lucy Williamson reporting from Seoul. Finally today, music from a group of Colombian expats now living in Belgium. The band is called La Chiva Gantiva. Chiva Gantiva formed when several Colombian musicians started playing together in Brussels. Lead singer Rafael Espinel says they wanted to feel more connected to their homeland. But he says it's gone further than that now. We are the friends, you know. We are, we are like a brothers. And I think it's, it's love. It's love from the music. Along the way, other musicians joined in. Now the band members are not just Colombian, but also French, Flemish, Walloon, those often overlooked Belgians, and Vietnamese. But Colombian culture is still the heart of La Chiva Gantiva. The band's title track from their new album, Pelau, is a good example of that. Pelau, it's a name of little guy, you know, a kids in, the, in, in Colombia. You, you, when, you, when you talk with a, a, a little kids, you, you talk, hey, Pelau, come, come with me. Hey, Pelau, where are you from? So, so it's a name... Uh, it's not a dictionary name, you know. <laughs> Palau, the song, is in both French and Spanish. It's about the harsh realities of immigrant life. Hey, 
Garder les trajets pour t'amuser Aussi pour ton train avant ton balai Prends ton balai, va nettoyer Tu l'es toilé, va astiquer, tu l'es cuvet Et si t'avais soin des papiers Est-ce que tu sais parler français ou néerlandais s'il te plaît Qu'on estime bien que t'en es tellement Je te le juro que no estoy mintiendo Lead singer Rafael Espinel says La Chiva Gantiva is like the new kid on the block. But next month, the band embarks on its first swing through North America. Give them a couple of years and they'll no longer be kids, but elder statesmen. You can watch the music video for Palau at theworld.org. We're back here on the radio tomorrow from the Nana Bill Harris Studios at WGBH. I'm Marco Werman. Como un pescadito recién sacado del agua, bien ahogado, mirando para lado y lado, como burrito champiñado. El cielo se me pone gris que va a reventar, es que no le cabe una nube más. No me quedo tu remedio que salí corriendo, es que me siento congojado, con los ojos a The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported by the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, by contributors to the PRI Program Fund, and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI Public Radio International.